Hello, everyone. My name is Lucy West, and I am a heart failure and heart transplant clinical pharmacist at Tufts Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. On behalf of HFSA, we are very excited for what we have in store for you today. We are pleased to be joined today by Dr. Mark Drasner, the current president of HFSA and the clinical chief of cardiology at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. We are also joined by one of Dr. Drasner's patients, Dr. Brittany Claiborne, a 36-year-old mother who was in perfect health until she was diagnosed with a condition called peripartum cardiomyopathy at only 26 years old. Welcome to the show, Dr. Claiborne and Dr. Drasner. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. All right, let's get right down to business. So let's start out with a brief overview of Brittany's diagnosis. Dr. Drasner, what is peripartum cardiomyopathy? Yeah, thank you, Lucy. So peripartum cardiomyopathy is a condition where women traditionally in the last month of pregnancy or the first five months after pregnancy develop a cardiomyopathy, just meaning a, a weak heart. What's interesting is that we don't really yet know why certain women develop this condition. And the frequency seems to vary throughout the world. Uh, In some parts of the world, it's extremely common. But on average, we typically say somewhere between one and two to 3,000 women will develop this problem. We still don't really know why. Recent recent evidence is suggesting there may be a genetic component to it. Um, But at the end of the day, we're still not exactly clear as to why this um, unfortunate event happens to these uh, women. Thank you for that explanation. Now, when did Dr. Claiborne first come under your care? Seems like you guys have a pretty great relationship. How long has it been? Yeah, so Dr. Claiborne, and I guess I'll refer to her as Brittany, she first came to UT Southwestern, I believe, in 2014 under the care of one of my partners, Dr. Alpesh Amin. And then when she was in the hospital in 2015, um, I was rounding one day in the hospital, and uh, that's when I first met Brittany. Um, and so I've been involved in her care ever since then, um, since 2015. And Brittany, when did you receive your initial diagnosis? I know he mentioned, you know, the start of your journey together, but when did you first hear that you had peripartum cardiomyopathy? I first heard that I had peripartum cardiomyopathy four days after my son was born. So that was September 16th, 2010 is the first time that I heard the phrase peripartum cardiomyopathy. I can't even imagine what that experience was like with a little babe at home too. So what happened in that in-between time? So maybe take us quickly from diagnosis to now where you are today in the care of Dr. Drasner and his awesome team at UT Southwestern. Absolutely. So as I said, I had my son on September 12th, 2010. And the pregnancy was fairly normal. We were at 34 weeks, I believe. And I went for just a routine checkup and they told me that my fluid was low. So I needed to see my OB. I went to see her and she said that we needed to take the baby early because there was just some something not quite right. So Michael was delivered and he was two pounds at the time. So he went to the NICU and that was on a Sunday. On Tuesday, I was released home. I had no symptoms. I felt fine. Everything was good. On that Friday, I went to lie down to go to bed that night and it it felt like someone was laying me down underwater. So I went back to the hospital. They readmitted me. And when I was admitted under general practitioner, he said, well, 
I mean, your troponin is high, so that would signify that you have had some type of heart trouble, but I, I think you may just have pneumonia or something like that. And that's why you can't breathe. So he admitted me basically saying that I had pneumonia. So I, I actually reached out to my OBGYN and I was telling her, I was like, I don't, I don't feel like I have pneumonia. Something else is wrong. So she had me readmitted under her service. And when she readmitted me under her service, she had a cardiologist waiting for me in the maternity ward. And we did, um, we did an echo and they saw that my heart function had decreased significantly. So I worked with that cardiologist for a while and was just on very basic things, um, Carvedilol, some beta blockers, Lasix for fluid retention. And about two years later, actually, I was at work. I kind of kind of recovered, so to say. I was at work and just did not feel well. And at that point, my general cardiologist said, we need to go ahead and have a pacemaker put in because you're, you're getting, your heart is getting weaker. So then I was transferred to the electrophysiologist and I worked with him for two years. So that was from 2012 until 2014. During that time, I believe I was defibrillated about two times, maybe. And as the heart continued to weaken, even with all of those interventions, he felt like I might need more advanced therapies. So he said, I've got, you know, there's a great team at UT Southwestern and I'd really like you to, to get in with them early. I don't, I don't know that you'll need a heart transplant, but you definitely will need some advanced therapies. And I think that's the team for you. So I was transferred over to UT Southwestern's care under, as Dr. Drasner previously mentioned, Dr. Amin. And now we're all best friends. So like I said, that was 2014. Once I got to Dr. Drasner's team, we did do some very basic things. We readjusted meds. We didn't do anything really advanced. They they just kind of, how, how would I put that, Dr. Drasner? They just kind of re-examined my case, I guess you could say, and made sure that the meds were right and they were doing everything that they could from a non-invasive standpoint. And then we finally got to the point, the defibrillator kept firing and they felt like it was time to to move to more advanced things and heart transplant was the was the call. Yeah, I, I, I'd say we, you know, whenever someone gets referred uh, to Advanced Heart Failure Center, we, of course, we always want to try to kind of optimize conventional therapies and try and stave off the need to have an elevator or a transplant. That's the real success. Uh, and so I'm sure that that's what the team was, was trying to do. And I should have said, when I talked about peripartum chromopathy, many women uh, who developed this, and, and by the way, you know, if you think about, you know, a new mom is hard enough, and then you add on top of this, this diagnosis, what a difficult situation for people. You know, I, I can only imagine what that's like to have your first child bouncing all that. I remember that well from my life, but then add on this diagnosis of, of heart failure on top of that. Gosh, that's, that's a lot to take on. But I should have said that many women who develop this condition fortunately will recover, uh, that the heart function can get better, even sometimes uh, enough that they can have another child. Uh, unfortunately, in Brittany's case, uh, you know, it didn't go that way, but that's not the expected course for everyone. It's just that Brittany is special. Um, and some uh, some uh, people just, despite optimal medical therapy, uh, won't get better and uh, end up needing advanced therapies like transplant or elven. 
and Brittany sure is special. I'm sure, <laughs> although the trajectory may not be the same, I'm sure there are a lot of patients who can relate to that journey and being on the different medicines and having optimization of those therapies and even having to get a device like you mentioned. Now, Looking specifically at the term heart failure, so this is a subspecialty of the field of cardiology, which requires specific training and credentialing for a provider to most effectively treat the condition like Dr. Drasner. As Brittany mentioned, we sometimes hear that it can be a long journey from this initial diagnosis until a patient connects with a cardiology who actually specializes in heart failure. Dr. Drasner, if someone has been diagnosed, how do they go about getting that referral to see the right specialist like yourself? And how do they even know which type of specialist to see? That, that's, a, that's a very important question. And, and usually what I say, because it turns out that many patients with heart failure are being cared for by their primary care physician or their internist. Um, and if you look from an epidemiological perspective, uh, sometimes cardiology is not, a general cardiologist is not even involved. And then among those who are being seen by general cardiologists, some of those patients would benefit from being referred on to an advanced heart failure center where they're advanced heart failure cardiologists. So my usual advice is if things aren't going well, try to at least move up one level, if you will, of expert, you know, training and expertise. So if you're seeing a primary care doctor and things aren't going well, at least ask to go see a cardiologist. And likewise, if you're seeing a general cardiologist and things are not going well for you, then you know, ask to uh, be seen by an advanced heart failure cardiologist. How to find those people, um, you can look for, it is now a board-certified specialty, so you can easily find out through the ABIM, for example, where there are advanced heart failure centers, and and almost all academic medical centers will have ABIM board-certified heart failure specialists. And so if if you're listening and you're being seen by a general cardiologist and things just aren't going well, you're not either feeling well or, or maybe your heart function still isn't good and your ejection fraction, you're hearing numbers like 30 or 20 about your ejection fraction and you want to see what else can be done, it'd be worth at least one consultative visit to an advanced heart failure center. Parenthetically, I had, we just came out with, uh, through the AHA, a scientific statement about referring to advanced heart failure centers and, and put out some recommendations along those lines uh, as well. So there's a lot of resources out there, but I think the key is looking for an ABIM board certified heart failure specialist. If you want to go to a person who has the highest level of training specifically focused on the condition of heart failure. Absolutely. So it sounds like always looking for what options and possibilities are out there, especially if you feel like things aren't going well. Now, let's say the patient has connected with the right heart failure specialist. They've now entered into this relationship where together, like the two of you, the patient and the provider are going to be making some huge life-altering decisions for the patient. It seems like trust for sure would be critical to the success of the patient and their treatment and critical to a patient feeling like they're taking that active role within their treatment plan. Brittany, when you were preparing for this episode, you were talking a lot about how um, you had this great relationship and this trust. You even said, you know, we're best friends, me and my medical team here at UT Southwestern. So how did that trust develop for you over the course of that period of time? It, you know, (laughs) the the team, the team is incredible. And, And one of the things I love about that team, I believe it's it's about six to eight 
at any given time between fellows and, and so on and so forth. And, and everyone, there's a few things. Number one, everyone has the same goal. And that's so important. And I know that that goal is to, to help me to help me get better, to get me to a better place. So the trust piece came in. I, I'm a question person. Like I'm going to ask you questions about everything as Dr. Drasner nods his head. <laughs> um, why are we doing this? Why are we changing this medication? What's the difference between 6.25 and 7.25? Is that going to make a difference? What is this strengthening? What is this weakening? How much more am I going to pee? Um, <laughs> all of those <laughs> things go into my normal visit. And the amazing thing about this team is every time I ask those questions or every time I asked why, they explained it to me. And they didn't explain it to me as if I was driving them crazy and they were just trying to get to the next patient. They explained it to me as if I was the only patient that they needed to see that day and as if they truly cared about my well-being. And they they do. That That's not something that you can fake. That's not something a, per, a person can fake. So regardless of regardless of if I was seeing Dr. Drasner or Dr. Amin or Dr. Thibodeau or Dr. Garg or whoever was on service that day, I would get the same compassion, the same care. And not only did they answer my questions, they would give me what I call behind the coat answers. Because, you know, when they come in in those big angelic white coats, it's like they're floating, right? They're coming to save us. But they would give me the behind the coat answers. And what I mean by that is, I, I remember one day specifically, I was... I had been in the hospital for a few months and I was waiting for transplant. And I believe it was Dr. Drasner that came in and said, let's consider LVAD. So we talked about it for a few minutes. Um, he came in, he sat down. We talked about that process, what it would look like, how it would change the heart transplant piece of it. And shortly after another doctor on the team came in, Dr. Moreland, and I said, I talked to Drasner Drasner and I understand what it does as far as transplant goes, but I still don't understand what the LVAD does. And he took off his coat and he erased my whiteboard where all the nurses and doctors names were. And he drew me a picture of this heart. And then he said, okay, so this is your heart right now. And this is the side that's enlarged. So what we're going to do with the LVAD is, and he proceeded to draw exactly what the LVAD does. He attached the LVAD to the left side and said, okay, and this wire will come out here and that'll be your charging wire and so on and so forth. And it just, I, and that may sound very, very silly, but for someone that's trying to decide life or death, that makes a huge difference as opposed to saying, oh, you know what, this is just the best option for you. And then walking out of the room to take that time and to help me understand why it was the best option for me was so important. And I mean, how, how could I not trust that? Absolutely. And so Dr. Dresner, as a provider, when you hear patients asking you why, or in this case, asking you what's going on behind that white coat, do those types of questions from your perspective help build trust? Or how does that change how you respond to the patient? Yeah, for, first of all, you know, hearing hearing Brittany describe this uh, is very moving to me, and and you know, I'm so proud of the team we have, uh, and I'll say the trust that all our patients put in us, you know, is something we take very seriously, and it's also something as I've thought about this, 
at each encounter, you have to earn that trust. You could be great for a year, but that next person you see, that doesn't matter. Each, every single time, every encounter, you have to earn that trust. I, I think in terms of why I, you know, it depends on the specific person. For Brittany, who's very knowledgeable, that's that's really very important to her, and and, and is great that we can give information. I, I would say that that's not true of every patient. And and the way I think about it is, you kind of want to meet the patient where what's most beneficial for them. Some patients don't want to go into all those details. Other patients do. I always like it when they do, like Brittany, because then they will fully understand, and then you want to make sure informed decisions are being made especially about something as huge as whether you should get an LVAD or a transplant, you know, life altering, high risk decisions. Um, you want to make sure that the person fully understands as best as possible what we're talking about and that they that, that make sure we're making the right decision together. So I always enjoy that. I will say though, as I'm, as I'm trying to kind of refine that just a little bit, some patients, you meet them in a different level than that. And that's fine. Whatever is best for each patient, certainly for, for Brittany, I think, you know, giving giving the details and the information as she processes all that was super important for her, as you've heard. So, Dr. Dresner, on that, why I of course I had a great team at Methodist that transferred me to you guys, and I I didn't have to ask the whys there. But do you think there's some value in patients that are kind of in that in between? Maybe they're not with the right provider, asking why in those scenarios, like why why am I not seeing a more advanced practitioner, or why am I not getting better or whatever the case may be. Is there some value there on, on where I need to be as far as, you know, with the correct team or with the correct specialist? Yeah, I, I think, you know, being proactive about your health is absolutely what everyone should do. And for any condition, if you're seeing someone and you're not either comfortable or you just want to make sure that everything's being done, a lot of times I'll have patients just ask me, you know, is everything being done or should we think, I don't even know what question to ask. Um, they'll say to me, is there something else I should ask? Or is there something else that, that we haven't talked about that could be done? I think that that's a, a excellent for everyone listening, whatever you have heart failure or any other condition. And also having family members. Sometimes, you know, the dynamics, it's a little hard for the patient. And there's that patient-provider relationship that I, I've heard people, you know, some patients get worried about. And you know, and maybe if you have a family member or a loved one or a relative with you so that they can kind of ask maybe the harder questions. Because I know some patients, some patients, not that as a physician, I ever get upset. I like it when someone says, can I get a second opinion? Because I always want to make sure we're doing the best. And if there's another pair of eyes that can help, I'm all for it. The one thing is I do want to make sure that the second opinion is coming from someone who has you know, expertise that, that would be a reasonable second opinion. But I, I would like that. I never get offended. I, I, and I think if you, if the person you're seeing is getting offended that if I was seeing a patient, a, a physician, and I asked to get a second opinion and they got offended about that, I would think to myself, I probably need to get a new physician, to be honest with you, because why would you be upset if they're asking to get another opinion, if that might be, might help your, help your, your case, for example. So yeah, I think those. I think that's very what you're describing uh, is important to, to people listening, patients, to ask those questions. Uh, is everything being done? Is there anyone else I should see? Are there any questions that I haven't asked that I should ask? I think those are all good things that you might uncover things that you didn't even know are out there um, as one possibility. We have to talk talk about the first time we met each other. Is that okay, Lucy? Absolutely. Okay. 
Do you want to tell the story or do you? No, you go for it. <laughs> okay. So I, I walk in the room. It's, it is uh, the first time I met Brittany and, and she's in the hospital, you know, fairly ill. And we're having this, and, and as you can tell, as soon as you meet Brittany, everyone's her best friend. I mean, you know, you can see that right away, uh, Lucy, I'm sure. And so we have our visit and I'm walking out and we talked about some pretty heavy stuff by my recollection. And almost as I'm out the door, uh, Brittany said to me, well, you know, what should I do? I'm going to have to stay in the hospital this whole time. It's going to be a long time. What should I do? And maybe because we had this kind of back and forth, you know, discussion, May, I wouldn't say flippantly, but maybe more casually than I would have said, I kind of turned around and I said, do something amazing. And I, I left the room. And then it the next really day I came did. back, <laughs> the next day I come back and Brittany has this big smile on her face. And I'm like, how are you feeling today? And like quickly go through that. She's like, but I have to tell you what happened since, since you left. And within one day, I had rounded the day before. Now I'm back rounding again. She had developed a website that I believe was already up on the web where people can go and click on a state and it would take you to the organ donation page for that state to promote organ donation. That was in, she's in the hospital being taken care of for heart failure, just learning that she was going to have to stay in the hospital probably for an extended period of time. And yet she had this thought, how can I help other people? And not only that thought, but executed it that within the next day, this website is live. And she's like, see, I did something amazing. And then she looks at me and she says, and what did you do? <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> and that was it. I, I quickly learned I am never going to, Brittany's going to have the last word. In this, in this, in this <laughs> she did something amazing. And that was just the beginning. Since then, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. And, you know, <laughs> I'm so sorry I said that. <laughs> so sorry I said Seems that. Seems like no, he's and, doing pretty well for himself now. This is why we're best friends right here. This is why, because he mm -hmm. can dish it, but he can take it. So he's good. He's good. He passed the test. You know, in that, you know, when you talk about why and why do you trust the team, one of the things that I realized when he said, do something amazing, he, he literally had come in and said, you're going to need a heart transplant. That Those are the words. He see, He's acting like he came in and told me like my blood sugar was low or something. No, he came in and told me, you're going to need a heart transplant. We're about to start the workup. It's a seven day workup to get you prepared to get on the list. And so he gives me all of this information and kind of tells me all of the different doctors that are going to come see me and so on and so forth. And of course, like he said, as he's leaving, I asked, what do I do while I wait? And he says, do something amazing. And the reason I trusted him at that moment is most providers probably would have said, well, you know, call your family. Like, you know, they kind of would have read you the right at call your family. You might want to look into insurance policies before we put this on paper, um, stuff like that. But no, he said, do something amazing. And to me, that meant that he saw me as more than a diagnosis. He saw me as a mother. He saw me as a wife. He saw me as a daughter. And he wasn't there to just deliver a diagnosis and walk away. He was there to make sure that I could continue living in the best way possible. He delivered this diagnosis, but he, he also knew he didn't deliver a death sentence. And that's why I trust this scene. Because him trusting 
that I had the time and the ability to do something amazing in spite of my diagnosis made me do something amazing. If he would have given a different answer, if he would have said, call your mom, start, you know, start making some plans for whatever, for a babysitter for three months, I would have laid in that bed and that's what I would have done. But his ability to change my perspective of my situation is absolutely why I love this team and I love that they love what they do. I think I think you hit it on the head, you know, as I thought about it in terms of the trust issue. Um, and this is when I talk to my house staff, this is, this is what I say. Um, I say at the end of the day, I think most patients, and look, we're all going to be patients. So this is, you know, myself, you, Lucy, as, you know, as much as healthcare people don't like to think that way. Um, at the end of the day, you want the person taking care of you to think of you as a person, not a diagnosis, not a case number, but as a, as a person. And that's when I speak with my house staff. That's what I try to always encourage them to do to get to that point. Because I think that is what you so eloquently described, Brittany, as, as generating the trust. I think she's perceiving that um, on, on the patient side. Maybe even more than the why or what else, it's is the person, is the is the person taking care of you seeing you as a person? I think that that's what you want to get to with the that's what I certainly want to get to when people take care of me. Um, and if you don't feel that, then forget about the specialty. You know, they may be a heart failure specialist, but if, they, if they're not there, then, you know, then maybe the primary care doctor is the better person to take care of you because you really do want someone to have that, I think. And that's, absolutely. I think he's absolutely right. Yep. I think that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So some key takeaways from all of this that I'm hearing, you know, asking the questions and asking why is everything being done? What questions should I be asking that I haven't already are very important, you know, trying to figure out what's going on behind that white coat. But I think that relationship building and that feeling of trust and being felt like you are being treated as a human being and not just a patient or a case number, like you said, is even more important um, so that you can go do something amazing, right? So uh, getting back to this term of heart failure, right, because you get that diagnosis of heart failure and you maybe feel like you can't go out and do something amazing. So that term, right, heart failure has come under some scrutiny in the recent times. And by definition, you know, we hear the word failure and that can indicate that the heart is maybe broken or not functioning anymore People hear that and they think that their heart has stopped, which isn't exactly true. Um, And some healthcare providers are even trying to alter the language used, suggesting a transition from heart failure to actually referring to the condition as heart function or referring to the patient's heart function. Um, In fact, the HFSA's 2022 Heart Failure Awareness Week's theme is function, not failure. So Dr. Drasner, can you tell us why some are making this shift to using the phrase heart function instead of heart failure when speaking with their patients? Yeah, it's, it's, become, a, it's become a big issue. And, and, you know, words matter, let's face it, that, more now than ever, I would say. And so patients don't, you know, patients don't like that label, first of all, failure. No one wants to be labeled as a failure. And then, as you said, um, it almost denotes that that something's broken and, and can't be fixed, and that's it, the game's over, which is not reality. With modern-day medical therapy, 
maybe half patients, maybe more, you can recover ventricular, you can recover heart function, ventricular function with modern day medical therapy. And then there's even been issues about people who might be spokespeople for the condition. You know, let's say celebrities don't want to be associated with heart failure. They don't like, you know, association with failure. So there's been this movement that's not really capturing what the condition is and we need to reform it. And there have been some, and I would say the editors of Journal of Cardiac Failure have been really trying to promote this idea about function, not failure, which as you heard, will be part of the awareness week um, next uh, next month. So um, I think that's 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 where it is. Is that we don't, but we're not quite there in terms of what should it be called. Um, but I think there's a general consensus, or a lot of people, at least I should say, are worried that fa- heart failure is not the right way, r- the right not the right description for this condition in 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 2022 anymore. We need to think about how how can we rename this illness. Um, to a reflect more what the natural history is, b not shatter people's hopes just when they get diagnosed with it, uh, and and be more realistic about what what can be what can be achieved these days with with modern day medical therapy. That certainly sounds very promising, and like you said, I think it has a little bit more hope and can help the patient become more hopeful in their trajectory with their disease. I think it's certainly an important topic that we're going to have to continue to discuss amongst the medical teams, but also with our patients like Brittany too. Before we wrap up, I do have one last question um, to hopefully send our listeners off with some takeaways. Brittany, is there anything that you would say to a patient who's too nervous to ask the questions or speak up for themselves or too nervous to tell the team, you know, I don't actually know that I want to move forward with this treatment, whether it be a medicine or device or what happens if I don't take it. What would you say to that listener? At the end of the day, regardless of how amazing our team is, we as the patients are the only ones that know how we feel. So we have to be our first line of defense. We have to be our biggest advocates. And if you have an amazing team, if you have a, a provider that you trust, um, and it, like Dr. Drasner said, if you don't have a provider that you trust, first of all, we need to pedal that back. But if you have a provider that you trust, that provider will listen to you when you say something's not right. Um, it is okay to ask why in some of these situations, because when we know better, we will do better. When I know that, hey, I can only, water is great for you, but you can't drink too much because you're in heart, eh, not failure, but whatever word we're going to use next year. Um, so we need to we need to tweak that a little bit. That helps me to do better because now I, I know better. So there are some things that, that may seem very basic and very simple and, and almost asinine to ask. Um, and it can be, I'm, I'm not going to, I, I say I'm Dr. Claiborne now, but in those moments when I was going through this, I was just regular Brittany and I had no idea what was going on. Um, so finding out what was best for me by engaging with my team and by saying, okay, why does this medication make me cough? Or why is it on my allergy list? Why can't I take that? What does it do to my body? Um it helped me to be able to engage with my team better because I understood me better. So understanding yourself 
listening to, to your body as the patient, and then being able to communicate that information to your provider and say, hey, I'm taking lisinopril, but it, it makes me cough a lot. Is that is that a thing? Um, they usually, they have so much information behind that code. It's insane. It's insane how much stuff they know, right? Um, and nine times out of 10, they've seen it before and they can help you through that. But once again, if we don't speak up for ourselves, if we are not our first line of defense, then if we don't say, I need help, then they can't be the help that we need. So that is the one thing I would say is if something's not right, if it doesn't feel right, if it doesn't look right, if you just need more help, communicate that. Say, I, I, something's not right. I don't, I don't feel like this is working or I would like to try that or whatever the case may be. And as Dr. Drasner said, if they are doing what they're supposed to do, or if you ask for that second opinion and they're kind of upset about that, may want to look at your provider, but a great provider is going to say, okay, well, this is what we can and cannot do to get you to optimal health. Because at the end of the day, like I said, everybody's, everybody's goal is the same. And that's to, to get you healthy and back to living a life that's amazing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Dr. Drasner, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, thank you, Lucy. Thank, thanks for having having me and us. Um, you know, we're we're taping this in, in the middle of uh, the Omicron wave of the, of the uh, pandemic, and um, I've taken to uh, this uh, initiative, what, what I'm calling kind of beacons of light. You know, there's there's a lot of darkness out there, and I look for events in my daily life that are you know positive and and shining through. You know, Mr. Rogers talked about look for the helpers. I'm talking about looking for the beacons of light, and I will say this conversation and hearing Dr. Claiborne again is a clear beacon of light for me. What an inspirational person you are. And uh, thank you for taking the time and doing this with us today. And I know that there'll be a lot of people listening that will be um, moved by your story. And so thank you. It is absolutely my pleasure. And I will echo those thoughts. You both are incredible human beings. Um, and it was, I got goosebumps multiple times hearing your story. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. And there you have it, folks. Great conversation. And I certainly, when I go into certain situations, I know to not be afraid to ask those questions and ensure that I'm building those relationships with my care team, as well as the patients that I work with. Dr. Claiborne and Dr. Drasner, thank you both so much for joining us today and giving us a peek into the amazing patient-provider relationship that you guys have built over all of these years. And to those of you tuned in, be sure to check out the other awesome podcasts created by the Heart Failure Society of America. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.